0: The stock market hit record heights in 2020, and so did the misery for working class and poor people in the tens of millions. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality. There's no denying it, capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are excited to have Professor Richard Wolff join us for a regular weekly segment where we discuss the biggest stories relating to the economy, the state of the working class, the crimes of big business. And we talk about how the economy can be reconstituted on a new basis, so that the needs of people and the planet come before profit. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work, and he is the author of many books, the latest being The System is the Sickness When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Check out his work at rdwolf, that's rdwolff.com. Professor Wolff, welcome back.
1: Thank you very much. Happy to be here.
0: Thank you for joining. Richard, there's so much to talk about. Uh, You know, last week when we we talked about democracy and capitalism and or the lack thereof, you you made mention of the fact that, you know, most people spend a good part of their lives, uh, at least their waking hours, at work. And while we're at work, we don't live in a democracy. We live in a in a system where we have no rights, no rights to speak out at least, unless we have a union, perhaps, in which case we have some rights. Uh, Really, really interesting that workers in the high-tech sector, the Google workers in particular, have formed a union. and, And, you know, these are higher paid workers, or at least higher paid for now. There may be a rapid de-skilling of that workforce such that the same thing that happened to auto workers and steel workers will eventually happen to high-tech workers too, meaning their wages will be driven down and their living standards driven down. But they right now are a more privileged sector of the workforce, and yet they have formed a union. And we want to talk about this intrinsic desire for workers to come together and how that's been a hallmark of capitalism for the last three, 400 years, but especially the last two centuries. But before we get to that story and a few others, I want to talk to you about uh, an, uh, a story that came out. It's an opinion piece by economist Paul Krugman. He writes for the New York Times. He's an economist. He's well-known. He's considered a liberal. Uh, this was back in August, but the story made another round at the end of the year because the 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 thing it was talking about was still true by the end of the year. The headline is, stocks are soaring, so is misery. Optimism about Apple's future profits won't pay this month's rent. Well, uh, that's very, very true. Now, Paul Krugman is not a socialist. He is a liberal economist. You happen to have a debate uh, that was featured on Democracy Now! back in February 2020, uh, I think a lot of progressive people will think, well, Paul Krugman, he's he's on the right side of things, m- meaning perhaps the left side of things. Uh, he's not a right winger. He's a liberal, and certainly by today's standards, something of a, a welcome voice. But uh, he's not a socialist. Let's just talk about first his, his headline, Stocks Are Soaring, So Is Misery, and also in, in, the terms, in terms of the debate you had with him, what's your core difference with Paul Krugman or his school of economics thinking?
1: Well, I think the core difference is about this system we live in, capitalism. Fundamentally, Paul Krugman is happy with it, supports it, endorses it. He thinks, like many liberals, that there are, uh, to quote the New York Times, some rough edges around capitalism. And he wants to smooth those rough edges by having the government come in with a file to file down the rough edges and make them smooth. If people, if employers are paying workers starvation wages, well then pass a law with a minimum wage, so they can't quite do that. If uh, the conditions on the job are literally killing you, well, then let's get in an occupational safety and health administration uh, to make sure that the noise level and the pollution level and the access to the bathroom are what minimum decency uh, would require if you're not a ghoul, if you're not so driven by profit that that literally all of the rest of humanity fades out of view. Uh, So he wants uh, capitalism With a happy face. Um, I don't. I don't think capitalism is the best thing uh, that human beings can produce. I think capitalism, like feudalism and slavery before, uh, is a passing phase that human being and human societies have gone through. But just like the people in slavery thought we could do better, and we eventually did, and the people in feudalism thought we could do better, and we eventually did. So the people living in capitalism are discovering, especially now, that we ought to do better, and I'm sure that they will find their way uh, to doing, in fact, uh, better. There's another way to kind of put this, though, that, that if you allow me, One of the great insights of Karl Marx was the insight that capitalism is efficient in producing wealth, but, and here comes his point, it is equally efficient in producing and reproducing poverty. It produces the two poles. It produces, in short, incredible inequality. And never has that been truer of capitalism than it is today, hence the headline of Mr. Krugman's op-ed piece, A Soaring Stock Market and Soaring Misery. Krugman seems to think that he's noticed something unusual, he hasn't, or that he's noticed something exceptional, it isn't, and then he goes on to talk about what needs to be done to smooth the edges. But my response is, no, no, This goes way deeper than edges. This is a problem of a system that has always reproduced poverty alongside of wealth. I live in New York City. The poverty is a short few blocks from the wealth. It could not be more obvious in the history of New York City and of the United States and of global capitalism that this is a system that produces poverty as well or as often as it produces wealth, with this being the difference. The wealth is highly concentrated, the, pro- the poverty is widely distributed.
0: Richard Wolff, uh, Karl Marx, since we're speaking of him, wrote Accumulation of wealth at one pole is at the same time accumulation of misery, agony of toil, slavery, ignorance, brutality etc uh he wrote that i believe in wage labor and capital it, it's also a similar uh phrase as found in 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 capital in his volume 1 of capital uh that it's the the doctrine of actually increasing misery and you know this theory has been challenged you know, by different socialists or Anti-socialists over time and would say, "Well, look at a, look at the American working class, the U.S. working class. It it wasn't just immiserated it wasn't just impoverished. It had periods where its uh, living standard went up, uh, and then you know perhaps people are forgetting that you know those were under certain special historical circumstances. Like the U.S. working class was truly immiserated in 1930s, but." Starting in 1945, at the end of World War II, where the U.S. was left basically unscathed and, in fact, you know, in a better position at the end of the war than at the beginning, unlike its rivals, unlike its capitalist rivals, where, whereby the U.S. produced 50 percent of the world's gross product and only had five percent of the world's population, so this enormous benefit or privilege existed, and then. Also the American union movement was stronger and so American workers wages went up and it seemed to you know go against Marx's basic uh, theory that uh, uh, the accumulation of wealth at one pole automatically means the immiseration at the other pole and yet as as that cycle has played out there is this growing immiseration such that the poor people's campaign led by Reverend William Barber and Reverend Liz Theo Harris now asserts that 50% of Americans uh, are in or near poverty. That's a shocking thought. But again, it it seems to revalidate this basic precept of Marxist economics.
1: Yes, and let's remember that Marx writes that 150 years before the New York Times and Paul Krugman uh, notice it. If you had been paying attention in the intervening 150 years, especially to the Marxist thinkers who made a point of reexamining, examining reapplying uh, Marx's insight, uh, you wouldn't re- write in these notions of surprise or marvel at something as obviously present and reproduced over time. But let me talk a moment about the 1930s. Uh, what happened there was not a refutation of Marx, not at all. What you had was a catastrophic immiseration in a relatively short amount of time. The, the relatively peaceful and relatively prosperous 1920s were followed by the worst crash of capitalism, the worst mass immiseration in a short period of time that you could possibly have wanted as an illustration of, of Marx's point. And then what happened is even more remarkable. The mass of the workers, immiserated, reacted to their immiseration by becoming militant and radical and leftist. Millions of them joined the union movement to take power at the workplace away from the employer, at least some of it. And tens of thousands joined two socialists, and a communist party to work with the CIO in the unionization drive. And you had organized millions of immiserated workers, victims of capitalism, to fight back. They're the ones who created Social Security, the whole New Deal, the first minimum wage, the first unemployment compensation, the first mass federal jobs program. All of those were done when the government couldn't afford it, didn't have any money, the depths of a depression. Why did it happen? Because capitalists proposed those things? Absolutely not. Capitalists opposed all of them. They opposed unemployment compensation. They opposed Social Security. They opposed the minimum wage. Most of them still do. These things were not produced by capitalism they were produced in spite of capitalism over the objections of the capitalists and their opposition. Imagine then the sheer uh, effrontery of people like Mr. Krugman carrying on as if the well-being for a short time of the American working class, and by short time I mean roughly the late 1930s to around the 1970s, 30, 40 years. Yes, the American working class became a middle class to its own delight, but that was by its own exertions, its own militancy, its own radicalism. And that was despite the the capitalists. And once they got their act together, the capitalists, starting in the nineteen the 40s already, they began to push back. And we're living in the last stages now of the resumption of capitalism's endless inherent drive towards greater inequality, just as Marx laid it out. And we're living it now. And what we don't have is the kind of militant movement from below that was able to change the course of history because it opposed capitalism. And unless and until we reproduce that now, we're not going to be able to see the kind of shift that was achieved by the New Deal and by the movement from below that created it.
0: Richard, I want to play a clip uh, from that debate that you had with New York Times columnist and economist Paul Krugman. Uh, again, this is back in February, it was right around the time that the Sanders campaign was surging, surging such that it appeared that Bernie was going to win Super Tuesday in early March, meaning have enough delegates that even the super delegates of the Democratic Party establishment would not be able to successfully deny him the nomination of the Democratic Party and then suddenly, right before that time period, Obama and the establishment, they called Pete Buttigieg and Amy Globuchar and the others, and they told him, drop out, uh, support Joe Biden, who was like you know, eighth in the polls at that point, not doing well at all, could hardly speak. He wasn't a formidable figure to say the least in the debates. They all united behind Biden and uh, and the Democratic establishment went into high gear. And Bernie was basically, you know, he's basically crushed. And within a few weeks or at least maybe six weeks, he basically surrendered. He agreed that Biden should be the nominee. He said, you're the man the country needs, uh, kind of quietly folding his tent, I think, to the disappointment of tens of millions of people. And certainly the people I know, the younger folks who are uh, also organizing and have become socialists or progressives or union organizers, partly as a consequence of their having joined either the 2016 or 2020 Sanders campaign and had been inspired by it they were disappointed but but they weren't done organizing they weren't done thinking they weren't done acting they in fact this whole new generation of young, activist organizers is very impressive. The The leaders of the Google Workers Union are in their early 20s. I mean, I'm going to play a clip in a little while from one of them who was on CNBC last night. Uh, I, I don't know her exact age, but probably like 22, 23 years old. Anyway, in this debate with Paul Krugman, you make the point that the Sanders campaign Contribution and perhaps looking back now, now it's not February 2020, we're in January 2021, and this and the campaign is over. But perhaps what you're talking about here is the lasting impact of the Sanders campaign. I want to play the clip and then get your comments.
1: Bernie Sanders is perfectly in line with one of the traditions of what socialism is. It's the government having a big role in offsetting some of the awful qualities of capitalism. But we also know that the kind of control that the government tries to operate is very difficult for it to succeed with. We once had a New Deal in this country. We lost most of it because we didn't go beyond a government intervention to change the society. What Bernie Sanders represents is an awareness that it's time to have a conversation we should have had for 75 years about our capitalist system and whether we can do better. This is now a changed environment in which what was taboo in this country isn't anymore. And Bernie has already achieved the breaking of a taboo in this country to talk about socialism, its strengths and weaknesses, its different interpretations, and compare them to capitalism, rather than running away because nasty conservatives call us various names.
0: Richard, uh, I think this is such an important point that you're making. And I do think it's the historical, big picture significance of the Sanders campaign because socialism was not taboo in Europe. It's not taboo in Latin America, in the Middle East, in Asia. It was taboo here in the, at the center of world capitalism.
1: Yeah, it has, the taboo has now been definitively broken. Um, I am getting reports over the last uh, six weeks of people explicitly accepting the label socialist, winning elections in Missouri, in Rhode Island, in New York, in California. We had that before in America, too, by the way, not just in other countries. Uh, I I like to challenge my students in class, asking them a simple American history question. In what state of the 50 states that we have, in which state did the largest number of socialists win seats in the state legislature? I always like to ask the question because my students never guess. The answer is Oklahoma. That's right. Socialism was strong in Oklahoma, as it was, by the way, in Minnesota, in Wisconsin, in New York, and in many other parts of the country. So what was can happen again, Uh, The taboo has been broken by Bernie after a rough 75 years of it being uh, very deeply anchored in our culture. Uh, We are all in debt to uh, Bernie, but we are also required to see what you just pointed to, that the establishment of the Democratic Party that has long ago been captured by its donors, the big businesses of this country, just as the Republican Party has, was given its marching orders. And those marching orders were crush this unpleasant troublemaker Sanders because he's revving up the people who are either critics of capitalism or victims of capitalism. And if the critics and the victims get together, the system shakes. By the way, those are the same people that are busy as we speak throwing Donald Trump under the bus. This should not be missed. Over the last 24 hours, a good portion of the Republican Party and the leader of every major business organization in this country, the U.S. Chambers of Commerce, the Business Roundtable, have told Mr. Trump, you're done. We don't want to see the results of the Electoral College challenged. We don't want you to do any of that. You are not our friend. We've had it with you. We want Sleepy Joe and everything he represents in your place. We want the placid middle that reinforces uh, capitalism at every turn and pushes away any challenge from the left and any socially disruptive challenge from the right. They got from Mr. Trump what they wanted. A huge tax cut for business in December of 2017, deregulation of much of what they do over the last four years, and a deflection of the mass upset and anger of the misery they've produced by focusing it instead on poor immigrants from Latin America and on the People's Republic of China. He's done what they needed him for, and they treat him with the same dispatch that have. He has resented all of his life. The newcomer not allowed to play in the big leagues. You've done your job, Mr. Servant. You're out. Uh, fortunately, Bernie didn't go out that way. He had some, some decency and some pride, and he went in a different way, although I share your sadness that he did. But we have our work cut out for them, for us, because we have to challenge the entrenched power and position of a capitalist class. But what we have on our side is not only our left-wing victims and critics of capitalism, but an enormous potential with a right-wing that tried to change the situation, failed to do it, and is being treated as shabbily as the left has in this moment. And that will teach them a lesson that may make them, at least some of them, the kinds of allies that the left needs to become the social force required to change the society
0: well, I think those are important issues, Richard you know because when you look at the Trump base, there is one element of it like the proud boys uh, who are Nazis and like here in Washington so many so many of them have beaten people and assaulted people. It's been really like a lynch mob type uh, atmosphere here, especially for black and brown people. And then there's other people in the Trump base. And so that's, there's the hardcore right, right part. And then there's a lot of uh, workers who have been sort of conned by Trump or by his demagogy, but they were former Democrats or even people, many voted for Obama. In 2008 and 2012, they turned against the Democratic Party. They were looking for something, uh, and again, you know, the left has to reach not not the. I mean, we have to fight the fascists in a way, uh, not in a way, but significantly, but reaching the other part of the Trump base, which are you know poor people, working class people, but people who have been conned by right wing demagogy. And it it takes me back to the point that you made about Oklahoma as being a center of socialism, because we think now of Oklahoma only as a as a red state meaning a Republican state, not a red state meaning a socialist state, which it was. And and in nineteen seventeen, and I think most people don't have a clue about this, there was an armed uprising in Oklahoma. It was called the Green Corn Rebellion. It was an armed uprising uh, in early August when the government tried to impose or enforce the Selective Service Act and draft Oklahomans into World War I an imperialist war. So you had white workers, tenant farmers, Seminole Indians, Muskegee Creeks, African-Americans, an amazing socialist-led coalition that staged an armed uprising uh, again, the left has to be able to speak radically to all sectors of the working class and the, and the poor who are being you know, driven into misery by capitalism and provide people with both a, a left wing, a socialist, a working class, an anti-racist and an internationalist perspective. And if so doing, or if we do it, uh, we can take a big part of that base away from
1: the right wing. Yeah, and I think it's important to point the finger here a little bit. Look, we have a, a, an agreement spread across the media, academia, and our political system that there is something appropriate about having only two political parties. We have a monopoly op- in politics operated by these two. You know, we have an antitrust division in Washington devoted to not having us have only two producers of anything, computers, automobiles, uh, hamburgers, or anything else. We don't believe in monopoly, we believe in competition, but we allow two political parties to exclude all competitors, to create absurd obstacles for other parties to form, To live in a world where in most other countries there are more than two important political parties, for example, in virtually every one of the European countries, etc., etc. And we have taught our people that there are only really two political options, uh, you know, Democrat and Republican. And what happened here is that over the last 50 years, the Democratic Party, which rode into exquisite power because of what the New Deal coalition forced Franklin Roosevelt to do, the Democratic Party frittered it all away. Not only did they not build on what was achieved in the 30s and 40s, they allowed it to be lost so that the minimum wage has been eroded by inflation, so that public employment isn't even discussed as a policy option in this society. And Social Security is constantly under attack. So when masses of working people who were staunch Democrats watched that the Democratic Party not only failed to enhance what was achieved in the 30s but couldn't even keep it going, they got bitter and they felt betrayed. And they had been. And because they thought the only other political option was Republican, because everybody, including the Democrats, had told them it's okay that there's only two, then you can't really be surprised that disappointed, betrayed Democrats joined the Republican Party. One of the most important things that Bernie Sanders and Alexandria... Ocasio-Cortez and the others are doing is beginning to break that taboo and monopoly and say, no, there is another political direction you can go into. If you feel betrayed by the democratic establishment, as well you should, you don't have to go to vote for Ronald Reagan or for Donald Trump. There is something else That is taking a long time. It is going slowly, but it is changing the whole dynamic of American politics, and it is one of the reasons they came down on Bernie, and it's one of the reasons they're terrified uh, of what Mr. Trump might be able to do, and so they're devoting their unifying efforts uh, on getting rid of the challenges on either side. They want to keep the monopoly in politics... Even though on every 4th of July, their spokespeople get up and tell us about the wonders of competition, just not where they are.
0: Indeed, indeed. Richard, last question. Uh, Really significant development. It's just the beginning of a a longer process. But workers at Google uh, have formed a union. It's called the Alphabet Workers Union. Alphabet is the parent company of Google. Uh, Again, uh, young workers, progressives, probably people who were also highly motivated by uh, and involved in Bernie's campaign and in other independent, progressive, working-class movements, they have formed a union. It's pretty big news because it has the potential of of quickly spreading to other uh, high-tech companies. I want to play a clip. It's from CNBC with the woman who is the executive chair of the Alphabet Workers Union. Her name is Parul Kool. Let's listen, and then I want to get, in our, in our final minute or so, your reaction to this uh, really important new stage of worker organizing. I really want to stress that this union is meant to be a democratic and open organization where any employee at the company can join and really use to further whatever cause or issue that they're facing. Um, I think some of the language in the op-ed really comes from the history of organizing at Google, which has really been about some of these like really uh, critical issues around sexual harassment or transparency around who our work is being used for. But that isn't to say that those are the only issues we're fighting for. I think the most important thing is that this
1: is an organization for all workers. We want to work with everybody that's interested in fighting to make Alphabet a better company.
0: When you think about how Google tried to dole out, you know, real perks and privileges, as did uh, other, you know, high tech companies to to avoid just this kind of thing from happening Richard, where workers start to combine with each other, see with each other allies and, and separate from management. Anyway, uh, let's get your, your comments in our last uh, 90 seconds about what this means for working class organizing.
1: Well, I think you're seeing it everywhere. It's a breakthrough. I think you're quite right to point the finger of attention on this situation. Uh, no company is exempt from what is going on in the larger society. The the workers at Google, like the workers everywhere else, have just gone through four years of watching the biggest businesses in this country sit by and allow the Trump government to behave in ways that were horrible for the mass of people that have been a major cause of the deaths of 350,000 people from a disease for which the country was unprepared and which the country failed to contain. I mean, to allow this is an unspeakable criticism, not merely of Mr. Trump, but of the whole business elite, that those who permitted it also became much wealthier over the last nine months, as the rest of us were going through the suffering of disease and death and depression. I mean, yeah, of course workers are going to rise up and realize that the people running their business and the people running this society are pretty much the same and that they need to be confronted. My only concern is that very openness, which I applaud, is also very dangerous because I hope the workers understand this is a difficult struggle. And the more open you are, the easier for your opponent to undo what you are trying to achieve. That is a contradiction. You have to face it. You can't pretend that being open is an unambiguous good. It's also a risk. And that has to be worked out if you're going to be more than a momentary rising and become a real feature of the political and economic life of this society. That's what we need, and my hat is off to your making the first move, but you have rough and difficult times and decisions ahead of you.
0: Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The System is the Sickness, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us, from pandemics or itself, be sure to check out his work at RDWolf. That's F.com.
1: You've been listening to the
0: Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.